You may be seated. What a great worship set this morning, because we do serve a God who is amazing, a God who is indescribable, and a God that there is nobody that He can't save. And we should desire to tell others about our Jesus. And if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to 1 John chapter 3 this morning. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 is what we'll be looking at. I've entitled this message, God's Great Love. And that's what we've been singing about this morning, is the great love of God. And just a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Easter. We celebrated the the resurrection of Christ. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus was not the end of the story of redemption. And just like the crucifixion was not the end of the redemption story, the resurrection of Jesus is not the end of the story either. You see, the story of redemption, it culminates with the second coming of Christ. There is an old hymn called, One Day. And several years ago, Casting Crowns popularized it once again and retitled it Glorious Day. And I'm sure it's very familiar to most of you. And it's a song that tells the incredible story of God's redemption. In verse 5 of this song, it brings the story of redemption to a climax. It says, one day the trumpet will sound for His coming. One day the skies with His glory will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved one's bringing, glorious Savior, Jesus is mine. And then it goes on to say, living, he loved me, dying, he saved me, buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever, one day he's coming, O glorious day. And you know, when Jesus does come again, it's going to be a glorious day. It's going to be a day like the world has never seen before. And as we go through this message this morning, I want you to think about that the only reason there is a story of redemption culminating with the glorious return of Christ is because of God's great love for us. And I want us to understand that the return of Christ is not only an awesome hope for the future, but it also should be a powerful motivation for us in the present. And in 1 John, where we'll be taking our text from this morning, It was written by the Apostle John, who was one of the twelve disciples in Ephesus between 85 and 90 A.D. And John, the disciple, he was referred to as the one whom Jesus loved, indicating that Jesus had a close connection to the disciple John. And the purpose of 1 John is to show two things. It's to show, one, that God is light, and it's to show the other thing, that God is love. And that we who profess Christ, we are to reciprocate to Him the love He has for us by living a life of faithful obedience to Him. And based on this passage, I want to share with you three things that we as followers of Christ need to do because of God's great love. So let's read 1 John 3, 1 through 3, and then let's let's dive into it. John writes, look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Dear friends, we are God's children now and what will we be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. The first thing I want to share this morning is because of God's great love, 
We need to recognize our position. We need to recognize our position. The first thing we do is we need to recognize our position with God that we belong to the Father. As followers of Christ, we belong to God the Father. The only reason we can become children of God is because of the love God has given us, the love God has extended to us in the first place. And the moment you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and accept what He did for you on the cross is the very moment you experience new birth and the very moment that you become a child of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone he is in Christ, he is a new creation. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, meeting Jesus, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. The moment you receive Christ, several things happen. God becomes your father. You're adopted into the family of God. You become heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ, meaning everything that Christ has will one day become yours. And why are all these things possible? The only reason these things are possible is because of God's great love. And in verse 1 of chapter 3 of 1 John, John is in awe of God's love. He exclaims, how great is the love the Father has given to us. Your translation may say, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. This is the same idea. Lavish given, it, it portrays the action and the extent of God's love. It means to give in abundance, to shower upon, to pour out. And even though God has given His love to us, has poured out His love upon us, has chosen to love us, it is our choice to love Him. We have a choice whether we love God or we have a choice not to love God. Love is a choice. And you constantly choose to love others. You choose to love those in your life that are closest to you. You choose to love your parents. You choose to love your children. You choose to love your spouse. And it's the same with God. He chose to love us. And because He chose to love us, we can choose to love Him. 1 John 4, 19, it says, We love because he first loved us. And the moment we choose to love God is the moment that we belong to God. And when we think of God's love, we can't help but think of John 3, 16. Very familiar passage of Scripture. God so loved the world. It just didn't say God loved the world. That little word so is so important. It says God so loved. That is so significant because it causes us to ask the question, what is the extent of God's love? How far does the love of God go? And God's love is so great. And God's love is so amazing that we can't fully comprehend its vastness. As we sang this morning, the love of God is amazing. The love of God is indescribable. And even though we can't fully comprehend God's love, and it's hard to describe, we can try to characterize it. You see, first, the love of God is undeserved. None of us deserve His love and forgiveness. Instead, we deserve death. We deserve to die for our sins, but God's love is like a river that endlessly flows and reaches us wherever we are, no matter what our sin, no matter what we've done, no matter our condition, no matter how far away from Him we may be. There's a, little, there's a story of a little girl who was disfigured by a fire and her face was scarred. 
And she was taken to a children's home. And she stood off in the corner and she watched as the director would go around and pick up the other children and give them hugs. And he would pick them up and, and give them some kisses. And after some time passed, she approached him and she said, Sir, I know I'm not pretty like the other girls. I know my face doesn't look too good, but would you mind just hugging me a little bit? You don't have to kiss me, but would you just please hug me and let me know that you're glad that I'm here? The director reached down, he picked her up, he wrapped her into his arms, and he smothered that little girl with kisses. You know what? So it is with God's love. Our lives were scarred by sin, but God poured out his love upon us. He loved us as we were. While we were still sinners, he died for us. He healed our scars by his scar. He washed us white as snow by the shedding of his blood. All of this because of his great love. The second thing is God's love is unselfish. He gave his only son for you and for me. Can you imagine sacrificing your child's life for someone else to live who didn't deserve it? You know, that question may have a different answer depending on the day, but, but this is exactly what God did for us. Jesus did nothing wrong. Jesus was sinless. He was perfect in every way. And He was willing to leave the beauty and the glory of heaven and to take the form of man and pay the penalty for our sin through His shed blood on the cross. Jesus did what he did, not for God's sake, not for his sake. Jesus did what he did for our sake. And what Jesus did was the greatest act of unselfishness in the history of the world. The third thing about God's love is it's unique. It's unearthly. It's out of this world. There's no love like God's love. Scripture says he wants everyone to come to repentance. He doesn't want anyone to perish. And the greatest accusation that was leveled against Jesus is that he was chastised for being a friend of sinners. He was chastised by the religious leaders for hanging out with the tax collectors. He was chastised for hanging out with the prostitutes. But you know what? When we stop and think about it, we should be so thankful that Jesus was a friend of sinners because we were sinners and still are sinners. The world has never seen such an example of love as God's love. <clears throat> and I'm reminded of what Jesus said in John 15, 19. He said, no one has greater love than this than to lay down his life for his friends. God's love is unique because he took the most humiliating expression of punishment, the cross, and he turned it into the greatest demonstration of love. The fourth characteristic is <clears throat> God's love is unconditional. God's love knows no boundaries. God's love has no limits. God's love is willing to do what is necessary and to go where necessary. God's love never runs out. God's love is not earned. God's love is a free gift. And it's not based on who we are and what we do, but it's based on who He is and what He did. And all we have to do is accept it. And here's the great thing about God's love. There's nothing that we can do that can separate us from the love of God. There's nothing that you or I can do that can cause God to love us less or to love us more. He always loves us the same. There is no love like the love of God. <clears throat> the second thing I want to point out 
is that we need to recognize our position not only with the God that we belong to the Father, but we need to recognize our position with the world. You see, we're bullied by the world. Because we belong to God, we're bullied by the world. The world did not recognize Jesus. The world did not accept Jesus. They failed to understand who he was. John 1, 10 and 11 of the Gospel of John says, He, meaning Jesus, was in the world. The world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own as his own people did not receive him. The world rejected and mistreated God's Son who came into the world for one reason and one reason only, to seek and to save that which was lost by giving his life as a ransom for many, paying the price for our sins by nailing them to the cross. You see, the world should have known that Jesus was more than a mere man. They should have known that Jesus was more than a great prophet or a great teacher because Jesus, no one had ever lived like Jesus had lived. No one had ever done what Jesus had done. And you know why they rejected him? They rejected him because of who he said he was. Jesus made it very clear that he was the Messiah. He made it very clear that he was the Son of God. He made it very clear that he and the Father are one. And the Jewish leaders accused him of blasphemy, which simply means he claimed to be God, which he was. And you see, because the world rejected Christ because of who he said he was, they're going to reject us because of who we say we are. If we say we belong to Jesus, if we say we identify with Jesus, the world will despise us and the world will oppose us. John 15, 18 and 19, it's, Jesus said, If the world hates you, understand it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world that I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. The world refuses to recognize the only thing that matters. And the only thing that matters is the acknowledgement and the acceptance of Christ. And not only does the world not recognize the only thing matters, which is Christ, they take it a step further. They reject those who do. The world is opposed to the things of God. The world is opposed to the people of God. And now it's not just about tolerating sin. It was just that we needed to tolerate the sin in the world. But now they've pushed it to the point that they want us to not only accept their sin, but to celebrate their sin. And we as Christians cannot go where the world has gone. We must take a stand for Jesus and stand on the truth of his word and no one has the right to change the word of God and to justify their sin if God's word said it's wrong it's wrong it's in the discussion it's not up for debate and you know what it's only going to get worse true followers of Jesus are going to continue to be bullied we're going to continue to be vilified by the world and those opposed to God are going to try to force their ideology upon us which is happening today and as believers and followers of Christ we have a choice we can give into the world or we can stand with God but you can't do both because to give into the world is take a stand against God if you give into the world and compromise your faith you're taking a stand against him you know and if the world bullies us how do you defeat a bully one way is to stand tall and address what the bully is saying and what we need to understand is when we stand up against the world, we are not standing by ourselves. We have 
God standing with us. Romans 8.31 said, if God is for us, who can be against us? That is a rhetorical question that requires no answer. It is understood that if God is for us, that no one and nothing can be against us. And so instead of being concerned about what the world thinks of us, we should be much more concerned about what God thinks of us. And we should desire to honor Him by living a life that is pleasing to Him, by living a life that is sold out to Him. And we need to understand that suffering for Jesus, that being persecuted and mocked for our faith, it's an inevitable outcome of living a life of faithfulness and obedience to Christ. And we are shunned by the world. And when we are persecuted for our faith, we are not to retreat, but we are to rejoice knowing that we are doing something right and that God is pleased with us. The second thing we need to recognize because of God's great love, we need to understand our potential. The second verse in 1 John chapter 3 says, We have not yet seen what God has in store for us as His children. It should excite us to know that Jesus is coming again, to claim us, to claim those who have received Christ as His own. And even though we don't know when Jesus is coming, we do know that He is coming because He promised He would return. And what Jesus said, He does. Jesus said He would lay down His life. Jesus said He would rise again. He did both of those things. And Jesus also said He's coming again. And if Jesus said it, it's going to happen. And after the resurrection, this is one reason that Jesus had to ascend into heaven. In order to return, he had to leave. And in light of his coming return, we must be ready and we must live in anticipation of his coming. And the promise in this verse is incredible. This verse is saying there is more, there is more to come for those who know Christ and those who don't know Christ. This verse distinguishes the destiny of the lost from the saved. Lost people, those without Christ, they have one thing to look forward to that's growing old. And I'm not sure that's much to look forward to. But they have nothing else to look forward to. When we grow old and die, for those who don't know Christ, that is it. This life is it for them. This is the best it gets. How sad is that for someone who doesn't know Christ, who goes through this life, and this is the best that they get. But in contrast, as believers, our outlook is completely different. You know, for us, life on earth is as bad as it gets. And John is saying to those who know Christ, he's saying the best is yet to come. He's saying you haven't seen anything yet. And looking forward to what God has in store for us, John implies us to live each day with joy, to live each day with peace. And what does God have in store what God has in store that when Jesus appears, everything that God intended to happen when he saved us is going to happen. And the second part of verse 2 in John chapter 3 tells us two things are going to happen. Look at this. He says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, we will not, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We will know when he appears. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. Two things are going to happen when Jesus returns. First, we will see Jesus as he is. We are actually going to look upon the face of Jesus. 
No one throughout history has ever seen Jesus except for those who lived during the time that Jesus lived. There are no pictures of Jesus. We really don't know what he looks like. A lot of people have tried to conjecture and paint a portrait of Jesus, but many of those conjectures and those portraits are poor. But through God's word, even though we can't really get a grasp of what Jesus looked like, we do have a glimpse of what Jesus is like. And one day when Jesus returns, when our faith becomes sight, we will see Jesus as he is. Stop and think for a moment that what that day is going to look like when Jesus returns. And the first thing you do is you see Jesus as he is. You know, when I was preparing this message, two songs came to my mind. One is a very familiar song, probably I can only imagine. It says, I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes would see when your face is before me. I can only imagine when that day comes and I find myself standing in the sun. I think the songwriter of Mercy Me got that right. We can only imagine what that day is going to be like. It's going to be better than we can ever imagine. But then there's another song, an old hymn called what a day that will be and it says what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see as I look upon his face the one who saved me by his grace when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land what a day glorious day that will be how incredible how mind-boggling to think that one day we will see Jesus as he is I'm not sure we could we can grasp what that day is going to be like The second thing that's going to happen, not only will we see him as he is, Scripture says we will become like him. We will think like Jesus, we'll look like Jesus, we'll act like Jesus, we'll talk like Jesus. As Paul said in Romans chapter 8 verse 29, we'll be fully conformed to the image of Christ. And this means that we will be pure in character. We'll be pure in character. You know, in this world we have trouble with sin. But one day, sin will no longer be a problem. And we have to remember that we've already been saved from the penalty of sin. We've already been saved from the power of sin. And when Jesus returns, there's another caveat to this. We're going to be saved from the presence of sin. When Jesus returns, we will no longer be in the presence of sin. We're also going to have a new body. We're going to have a glorified body. You may not like your body the way it is right now. Just hold on. It's going to get better. You're going to have a glorified body. You're going to have a body like Jesus. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly wait for a Savior from there, meaning the return of Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. Paul makes it very clear that when Jesus returns, we're going to be changed instantly into the body, into the glorious body like Jesus has. And not only will we be pure in character, not only will we have a new body, we'll also be forever satisfied when Jesus returns. Psalm 17, 15 says, And I in righteousness, I will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. You see, when this glorious day comes, we will never hunger and thirst again after righteousness as we will forever be in the presence of righteousness, Jesus himself. 
And we will be made perfect and complete in every way that Jesus is perfect and complete. The third thing I want to point out is because of God's great love. Not only must we recognize our position, not only must we understand our potential, but finally we have to put our faith into practice. We need to love him by living for him. Until Jesus returns, we need to practice what we say we believe. John 14, 15, Jesus said the night as before he was arrested and then went to the cross, he said if, to his disciples, if you love me, you will obey my commands. <coughs> and what's the greatest command in Scripture? It comes from Matthew 22, 37 through 40. When Jesus was asked that by the, the religious leaders who were trying to trick him, they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And that's exactly what we're to do until Jesus returns. But then we're also, Scripture says, commanded to be holy as he is holy. And if you put these two commands together, if we love God with all that we are, we will live a life of holiness. We will live a life that's different from the world. And the reason that we can and should live a life of holiness is because of the hope that is within us. This is what he says in verse 3. He says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What hope is he talking about? He's talking about the hope of Jesus Christ. And this is not a worldly hope. This is not a wishful hope. This is a no-so hope. This is a confident hope. You see, the world sets their hope on things that are not going to last. The world sets their hope on things that get lost, things that rot, things that rust, things that are destroyed, things that are damaged. And if we put our hope in things that don't last, when those things are gone, guess what we're left with? We're left with no hope. But if you put your hope in Jesus, if your hope is built on Jesus, if the hope is, of Jesus is in you, you must purify yourself as he is pure. Meaning that you must live a life of purity as the one who is living in you is pure. You see, the world's hope leads to a path of hopelessness. Because if your hope is built on anything but Jesus, you have no hope. The only way to have hope is to have the hope of Jesus within you. And when you have that hope of Jesus within you, you will desire to live the life that Jesus wants you to live, a life of purity and a life of holiness. So what does this have to do with the second coming of Christ? Everything. You see, the return of Jesus, it should be an incentive. It should be a motivation for you and me to live a life of holiness. Because one day Christ is going to return, and Scripture says he's going to return as a thief in the night. Scripture says there's not going to be a warning sign. You know, in Madison County, we have the warning sirens that go off when a storm is approaching, when tornadoes are approaching. That's not going to happen when Jesus returns. There are going to be no warning signs. There are no, not going to be any warning signals. And we're not going to have time to get our act together. We're not going to have time to repent of our sin or restore broken relationship. It's going to be too late. That's why it's so important for us to live for him now and until the day that he does come. You know, have you ever been caught in the act of doing something you weren't supposed to be doing? 
And then someone like a parent showed up and you wasn't expecting it. That's not a good situation. You didn't have time to straighten up. And when you were caught, you probably felt embarrassed. And the one who caught you was disappointed in you. You know, when Christ, the righteous one, appears, we don't want to be caught living a a life of unrighteousness. We don't want to be guilty of living a life of unholiness. We want to be found living a life of righteousness. We want God to be pleased with us when he returns and not disappointed in us. In 1 John 2, 28 and 29, look what John writes. He speaks of this very thing. He says, little children remain in him so that when he appears, we may have boldness and not be ashamed of him before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. John says that we don't want to be ashamed when Jesus returns. That we want to, when he appears, that we want to be, be bold. We have boldness when he appears. How can we have boldness and not be ashamed? By living a life of righteousness until he returns. So if we expect Jesus to come again, and we believe it could happen at any moment, it should have a tremendous impact on how you and I live our lives it should cause us to live for jesus regardless of what happens in our lives first john 2 6 john writes the one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked john makes it very clear that we are to walk just as jesus walked and just like jesus we are to maintain our purity through our temptations through our adversity, through our stress, there was not one moment in Jesus' life where we gave in to sin. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus did not give in to one temptation. When Jesus was on the cross and he was being crucified and he was, he was suffering, Scripture says, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. How could Jesus remain pure through all these things? Yes, because he was God. Yes, because God is perfect, but I also think there's something else at play in here. Jesus remained pure because of his great love for us. You see, one sin, one sin, one mess up, one wrong thought, one wrong motive, one wrong action would have disqualified Jesus to be our Savior. And I think Jesus maintained his purity not only because he was God, but because of his love for us. And he desired to save us. And in order for him to save us, he could not be guilty of one sin. And likewise, our love for Jesus should cause us to live a life of purity by putting our faith into practice. And when Jesus returns, we should desire to be found faultless. We should desire to be found blameless. There was a young girl, she went off to college, and the friends she hung out with suggested that she go to a questionable place, and she hesitated and said, well, I think I better not go. And her friend sarcastically said, are you afraid if your father finds out he may hurt you? She replied, no, I'm afraid if I go, I may hurt my father. You see, as children of God, that's the mindset we should have. You see, until Jesus returns, we should live in a way that brings glory to him and does not hurt him or disappoint him. 
We should desire to be holy as He is holy and pure as He is pure. And just like purity is the greatest gift that a bride and groom can give each other, purity is the greatest gift that we can give Jesus. Is this easy to do? Is it easy to live a life of purity? Is it easy to live a life of holiness? No, it's not. But you know what? God didn't leave us to do do that on our own. He gave us things to use so that we could reach this goal of living a life of purity. He gave us the resources that we need. He gave us His Word. We know what to do and not to do. It's in God's Word. He gives us prayer. He gives us the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into a life of holiness and purity. And He gives us fellow believers to surround us and to encourage us and to support us and to hold us accountable. But here's the key. Having what we need is not enough. We have to use what we've been given. It's not enough to know God's Word if you don't apply it. It's not enough for God to offer us an opportunity to spend time with Him if we don't spend time with Him. It's not enough to to just have the church. You need to, to be at church to be supported and encouraged by the church. It's not enough just for the Holy Spirit to be living inside of you. You have to be filled with the Spirit and allow the Spirit to lead you in your daily walk with Christ. You know, it's just like soap. Soap will clean you but it does no good if you don't use it. It does no good to look at the soap. It does no good just to hold it in your hand. It's no good if it's in the tub or the shower with you. If you don't pick it up and apply it, that soap is useless. You know what? It's the same with God's Word. It's the same with prayer. It's the same with Holy Spirit. It's the same with church. God has given us the resources we need to live the life He wants us to live, but it's up for us to use them accordingly. You see, in closing, I just want to share this illustration and show you how great God's love is. Danny was born with no ears. He could hear, but he didn't have ears like normal people. And all his life, he endured ridicule. He endured rejection because of his deformity, but he learned to live with it. But thankfully, he had loving parents and he had a loving family to sustain him. And when Danny was in high school, his doctor told him of a new procedure that made it possible to have, a, have an ear transplant. And that meant that Danny could get new ears if someone was compatible to him ever donated theirs. And Danny was excited about this. He thought about, after all, people donate body parts all the time, hearts and lungs and kidneys. But Danny soon found out that ear donations were extremely scarce. But he didn't give up hope. And he knew that someday that he would get new ears. So he graduated from high school with honors. He was accepted at a major university miles away. He kissed his parents goodbye and he began his life as a college student. And again, he found it hard to make friends and fit in because of the deformity of his ears. But one day he got a phone call from his dad. and His dad said, go to the hospital tomorrow, Danny. A donor has been found. The very next day, Danny checked into the university hospital where where doctors were ready to perform the surgery. A few hours later, Danny had brand new ears. And when the bandages came off, he gazed into the mirror for hours. He finally had ears like normal people. And for the first time in his life, he wasn't ashamed of the way he looked. Not only had he new ears, he had been given a new lease on life. A few weeks later, Danny received another phone call from his dad. He said, son, your mother's ill. 
She may not live through the night. Danny was on the first plane home. And when he arrived, his dad gave him the bad news that his mother had died before he could get there. Together, they went to the funeral home, and Danny was able to see his mother for the last time. He leaned over to kiss her cheek. He brushed her hair back from her face. He noticed that she had no ears. It was a mother's great love for her son. That gave him new ears and a new life. And it was a father's great love for us. That provides us with the hope of new life and eternal life and hope for the life to come. And one day Jesus is going to return. One day our hope and our faith are going to become a reality. And when it does we will see his face. We will be like him. And we will live with him forever. And the only reason we can look forward to this glorious day is because God showered his great love upon us. But until that day comes, I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you to live in expectation and anticipation of the promised and certain return of Christ by desiring to honor God in all that you do so that when he returns, that you will be found faithful thank God for his great love let's pray father we just come before you today and God we are just so grateful and so thankful for your great love where father it was your love that sent your son in the first place father it was your love that that sent your son to the cross for us it was your love that caused Jesus to rise from the dead Father, it's your love that caused Jesus to ascend to a heaven, and it's your love that's going to, to cause Jesus to return. And Father, I pray that we would live with expectation and anticipation of that glorious day when Jesus does come back. And Father, I pray that we would recognize who we are. Father, I pray that we, if we've given our life to you, would understand that we belong to you father that we are your child that you are our dad that we've been adopted into your family forever and we are heirs with Christ and father I pray that we would recognize because we belong to you we're going to be bullied by the world God the world is going to oppose us because we identify with you And then, Father, instead of taking a stand with the world, may we take a stand against the world and take a stand with you. And, Father, may we we think of that great day when you do return. God, what it's going to be like to see Jesus face to face. Lord, it's a day that we can only imagine to see Jesus as he is. Lord, it's a day that we can only imagine, Father, to know that one day that we will be like him but in father until that day comes may we put our faith into practice may we desire to live a righteousness and a life of purity because of the hope that is found in us and father i pray that our desire would be when jesus returns for those of us who know you to be found faithful and god all these things are because of your great love and father we have a choice to choose to love you or or to choose not to love you. 
And Father, I pray if there's one here this morning who's never given their life to Jesus and accepted his love and accepted what Jesus did for them on the cross, I pray this morning they would make that decision. Father, for those of us who've made that decision, may we think about the impact of the return of Christ and what we need to be doing until Jesus returns. And Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time of worship. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I pray this morning that God has spoken to you in some way and now we've come to the time of commitment. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, I want to challenge you to give your life to him today. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior so he can give you new life and eternal life. And so you can truly experience the great love of God.